This podcast is sponsored by Zondervan Bibles, featuring the new NASB Journal the Word Reference Bible. Let Scripture explain Scripture and reflect on what you learn. Listen for more at the end of today's program. Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count, with Carl Truman and Todd Pruitt. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Well, welcome to the Mortification of Spin. My name is Carl Truman. I am a professor at Grove City College in Western Pennsylvania, and I'm here with my usual co-host, Reverend Todd Pruitt, pastor of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Harrisonburg, Virginia, in, as he always says, the beautiful Shenandoah Valley. And today we have a returning guest. Uh, it's good to have this person on, though the context in which he comes on is is depressing, if you like. It's it, it's depressing that that uh, that it's going to be useful to hear from this individual again. His name is Ismael Hernandez. He's the executive director of the Freedom and Virtue Institute and author of a book that we talked to him about some years ago, Not Tragically Coloured. And we've asked uh, Ismail to come on today to talk about the the current state of racial tension and politics in the United States, particularly as it's uh, gelling around the, the organization and the concepts being advocated by Black Lives Matter. So great to have you on the program, Ismail. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's, it's a pleasure to be here with you all. It's lovely to have you back on. Perhaps you might, uh, we, we might kick off by, by asking you just to give uh, our audience, some of whom will be listening from elsewhere, won't be in America, to give us a sort of a brief uh, overview of what you think the, the current state of racial politics is in the United States. I think that what we are seeing today in America is it's a war of ideas. It's, a, it's really a, a decision that we as Americans had to make in terms of who we are and what is the direction of our entire society and entire civilization. It's a reflection of forces that were already in existence before the civil rights movement, but came to fruition full force during the civil rights movement with the first stage of the movement being more of a natural law affirmation of American values system of thought that call America to be true to what we said on paper, but affirm the values of the nation. And the second phase of the civil rights movement where those values were challenged was a negative, it was a pessimistic understanding of America that rejected the values of the founding and propose a new understanding that speaks separatism. Separatism from the ideas and create a new republic or, or physical separatism proposed by other. Ismail, um, one of the things that you affirm with so many others is that the proposition or the statement, Black Lives Matter, is something that 
you're going to have a very hard time finding anything wrong with. We want to affirm the equal dignity um, and equality of, of black lives along with every other life. And, and I would even say, I, I agree with those who, who want to simply replace it with saying all lives matter. I, I agree with the sentiment that says, well, now, you know, we do have a history where black lives were not valued in this nation. And so not only is there nothing wrong, but there's something entirely right with specifically affirming black lives matter, considering our past. We want to be able to say that. We need to be able to say that and, and, and believe that. And yet, the movement of you know, capital, Black Lives Matter, as, as a formal movement, uh, there are things that are troubling about this as a movement. In a recent article you've written, you trace some of the, uh, the, the, the strong connections between the movement itself, Black Lives Matter, with, within Marxist-Leninism, which, which is problematic or ought to be problematic uh, for us. But you also point out that um, there are some, some problems with how they conceive of the issue of oppression. And I wonder if you could just speak to that for a little bit. Um, how does the Black Lives Matter movement understand uh, the concept of oppression and how is that problematic in terms of a, of a biblical worldview? First of all, I, I agree with you 100%. There is a difference between the proposition or the statement, the slogan, Black Lives Matter, the organization, Black Lives Matter, and the movement, Black Lives Matter. So there is a progression here from a, from a true proposition that is based in, in, in all human beings being, being made in the image and likeness of God. You cannot be a Christian and reject that that proposition. As blacks are human beings, they are, they have dignity. There is nothing wrong with focusing on blacks it's for a specific purpose, the same way that there is nothing wrong with focusing on the unborn for a specific purpose. So it's not by definition, in principle, exclusionary. But when the proposition becomes a slogan, that's where we, we begin to see the problems because Slogans are what they call a synodoxy. It's something that is a larger problem, a larger context that is condensed in a short, pithy phrase. What you see is the proposition. What is meant, you cannot see. Because the slogan is mobilizing you towards a very specific set of actions. For example, when you see a kid starving in a TV commercial that is trying to make you give money to a specific organization, they are trying to condense the entire problem of poverty into the action of giving them money. So when the proposition Black Lives Matter gets in the hands of a Marxist-Leninist organization, the concept of oppression comes to the forefront. We are an oppressed people because America is intrinsically oppressed. Notice how we are collectivizing the reality of every human person. Blacks as a group, uh, as a group that is an epiphenomenon of social class. At the very bottom of all this exercise is the concept, the Marxist concept that 
society moves forward through violence, through the struggle and competition between social classes. And this, human, and this struggle is independent of the individual human will. It's a historically necessary process. It's a scientific reality, as Marx will say. And this struggle has what they call epiphenomena. In other words, manifestations of oppression of minorities, of gender groups, of the workers, of women. And all of these are manifestations of these forces in history that, that are inexorable. And that is the problem. As a Christian, what moves history is the hope that Christ brought to the world not the antagonisms of classes. Antagonism exists because sin exists. Antagonism doesn't exist because it is an inexorable force that advances civilization. Would you respond to somebody who might say, well, I, I understand that Black Lives Matter as, as an organization represents something of a, of a Marxist take on our contemporary situation, but... Racism's an evil, and it's it's quite standard for uh, for individuals to join together in a kind of popular coalition when opposing a particular evil upon which they agree, even if perhaps they they consider it an evil for for slightly different reasons. I'm thinking here, you know, I would have little problem in standing shoulder to shoulder with a Muslim on the issue of abortion, for example. Uh, what about Christians? And I've spoken to a, to a few over the last couple of months who would say, well, yeah, we, 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 we don't buy into all of the Black Lives Matter ideology, but this is the idiom of the moment for opposing something that is real and is evil. And as Christians, we, we uh, members of civil society, we're often standing shoulder to shoulder with people who, with whom we have serious disagreements. How would you counsel somebody responding to, to the movement like that, Ismail? That well-articulated expression that you just, just made is what Vlad Lenin would have said in 1919 at the second uh, conference of the third coming turn where they decided to create the concept of United Front. That's exactly what they were saying. We will join with what they call fellow travelers who are not of our thinking, who are not revolutionaries, who are probably, if we tell them our intentions, will reject our intentions. But we will join them for a, for a trek of our journey. And we will focus on what interests them, on a good cause, on a positive cause. That, that, that's what they will, they will tell us. But they will not understand what is the heart of the movement. That is the problem with the United Fronts. The, in the front, what do you see? Well, you go to the front of the house and you see the porch and you see the, the door and the windows very nicely. You see something at the beginning. Now, when you open the door, you see what is inside of the house. The heart of the movement is the organization. Think about it. What organization has benefited from all this movement of good people trying to do positive, positive things for the question of race. It's the organization which is Marxist. Who is the one that represents the, the, the movement? It's the organization. Who controls the message? The organization. You unwittingly may be cooperating 
with something that you, if you knew better, you would not accept. And that's exactly what United Fronts are all about. They need the masses precisely because they are a minority. Because they are a minority, they need the majority that is attached to a, and the epiphenomenon, not to the heart of the movement. But once you are in the whirlwind of the movement, you are, if you oppose the center, you are expelled. If you remain in the movement, even if only to advance the specific cause, they use you. And we should not be, a, we should not allow others to use us as Christians. Why do we need to go to the secular Marxist anti-Christian world to, to learn how to love each other, to learn how to help and love our black brothers and sisters? Why do we need them to tell us how to do this? Why can't we create our own initiatives, our own organizations, and our own movement that is based on, this, on, the, on the right principles, that are the principles that Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago brought to this world, not what in 1818 Karl Marx brought to the world. And, and you speak, you've been a guest with us before, and, and you, you speak to some of these issues uh, in, in, in your book, Not Tragically Colored. You, you speak to this not as um, someone who has simply learned this uh, information from afar, but as one who, um, younger in life, prior to your conversion, um, had walked that path in terms of uh, radical politics and, and Marxist politics. Isn't that so? Yes, my, my father was founding member of the Puerto Rican Communist Party. He was there in 1959, January 11, 1959, when they began the movement for independence, which was a Marxist-Leninist organization heavily aligned with the Cuban Revolution and with the thought of Marxist uh, Gramsci, the, the Italian Marxist, so that is the founder of cultural Marxism. Mm. And I joined the party with him, and my father left an extensive FBI file. And mm. I joined the Jesuit order because I found a way to, to be religious and Marxist at the same time. <laughs> this is my 1987 uh, liberation uh, theology was growing in Central America, and they were going to send me to Sandinista, Nicaragua, to study philosophy. And I wanted to, to join a united front, the Sandinista Nicaraguan United Front for Liberation. And there was another front I wanted to join was the Farabundo Marti Front for National Liberation in El Salvador, which was right there in the border where I was going to be leaving. So I know that these organizations give you the idea that they are standing for something positive. You look at our history in America, you will see that in every positive uh, movement, like workers' movement, social work movement, the right of voting for women, the rights for the workers to have better conditions, all positive accomplishments, but the real, why they, they join these movements? Because they understood that each one of them, those will create a wound in the capitalist system. They use those problems to wound the system as a whole. And that's the problem with systemic racism 
as opposed to the systematic racism understanding, which are two different ones. Um, I'm, I'm a pastor in the Presbyterian Church in America. It's a, uh, a theologically conservative uh, denomination. And yet, within our ranks are, are pastors who are starting to um, advocate that people read, uh, do some readings in liberation theology and black liberation theology because they're finding a lot of things within black liberation theology and liberation theology that they believe are helpful. And even some of my fellow pastors in the PCA have, have gone on social media to recommend that people read books by James Cone um, and, and do readings in liberation theology. What would you say to my fellow PCA pastors who are starting to dabble in liberation theology? What would you say to them and their curiosity about that? Well, read those in fear and trembling. Read those very carefully and read the critiques of these ideas. Read Michael Novak, read other uh, thinkers who have examined the question of, of liberation theology. If you go to a Marxist-Leninist classroom, the first three weeks, if you should explain to the kids what is Marxist-Leninism, all of them are Marxists, the first three weeks of the class. But then comes the critique of the movement, and that's when the most intelligent of your students will stop being Marxist. <laughs> in, in other words, you have to be careful simply because you read something that uses Christian language doesn't mean that it has the Christian spirit or the foundations in anthropology and philosophy and, and theology necessary to understand what is being attacked. Moreover, liberation theology was a critique of a system that they called capitalist, when in reality it wasn't capitalism. It was another type of system that has the semblance of markets, when in reality it was it were closed systems. The answer to that they were looking for was to the north, in the system that America has created in 1776 and they did not realize that that was the answer to what they were critiquing. It's interesting you mentioned Michael Novak there. I, I, think, uh, I still think his book on social justice is one of the best. And we actually did a program where we discussed that book, not with him, but just uh, among ourselves some time back. And we had some of the fiercest pushback ever on that program mm. from conservatives, theological conservatives, simply because we'd actually raised the question of, what is social justice? And it comes to the conclusion, you know, it's actually quite difficult to define. It's, it's, it's almost a kind of, I won't say it's empty rhetoric, but it's a buzzword that is thrown out there. And when you actually try to drill down into what exactly do you mean by this, uh, very few people have actually got anything approaching a coherent uh, concept of it, it, it seems to me. That's the lure on the power of, of, of Marxism and ideologies that appeal to the emotions and appeal to the sense of anger that we all have to injustice. Mm. Uh, that's how they 
they know how to run revolutions. They don't know how to run day one after the revolution. And that is the problem. They, they know how to destroy the system in place, but what they propose as what is going to replace it is, is destructive. Mm. And that's what I came to, to learn. And I had to be confronted with a different reality. Yeah. When I came to America, I, I had to be confronted with the reality that I experienced, not a book I read. And, and that is important. I was not one of these cafe latte, iPhone wearing, uh, let's go to the God revolutionaries. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. And I always say that the best place in the world to be a communist is in America, where you, you can think like a communist, you just don't have to live like one. <laughs> so when we experience the idea of socialism, it's very different than the theory of socialism. Yeah, yeah. yeah. One of the things that, that people uh, really began to, to notice immediately about the movement Black Lives Matter is once they, you know, uh, published their website online and, and you would go to their, you know, their core values, um, you began to see a, a very strong commitment to the LGBTQ um, ideology. I think they had of, of their 10 or 12 statements, four of them were connected to, to LGBTQ um, ideology. And then another one talked about their, their resistance to the nuclear family and wanting to, 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 to undermine the nuclear family. And, and a lot of people began to ask, well, now hold it, what does this have to do with Black Lives mattering? Why, why would that be so pushed by the organization? But I wonder if you could just say, uh, kind of explain briefly uh, why, the, why those that are behind the movement, Black Lives Matter, why those ideologies are so important to them and why it makes perfect sense to those behind the movement for those ideologies to be upfront, you know, the, the devaluing of the family, the promotion of LGBTQ ideology. Why does that make sense to the founders and the movers behind Black Lives Matter? Because, as you say, it's an ideology. If you read the 1848 Communist Manifesto, it's almost line by line what many of these organizations today propose. Mm. It's, 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 it's to end capitalism by a thousand wounds, a thousand cuts, tiny cuts. It, it's is an intention to destroy the system as a whole. But remember, they're beginning to change and check and take out right. some of those propositions from their website. I just saw that, Because they understood yeah. that it was hurting them and they are not ending their belief in those ideas. They are taking them from, from the spotlight. And that is how the United Fronts work. They give you what you are expecting, they don't tell you what is the ultimate goal. Let me, let me read to you what Alicia Garza has said. I'm not trying to indict these people. These people have said to us who they are. Mrs. Patrice Kohler said, we are Marxists. We are deep Marxists. And Mrs. Alicia Garza has said that the intention of Black Lives Matter is, is to abolish capitalism. What does that have to do with, with, with with police brutality. She has said it's not possible to abolish capitalism without a struggle against nationalism and gender oppression. Mm -hmm. And that 
we built this movement as a front to rebuild the Black Liberation Movement. She even used the word front. Black Lives Matter is a front, it is one of those aspects of a larger movement to destroy the foundations of our civilization. And many Christians are buying into this systemic racism fallacy. Because they are good people, because they want to do something against injustice, and because us as Christians have failed to give them an alternative that they can embrace. And suddenly you have this massive movement that is all over the media, that is receiving millions of dollars, and that presents itself to you and me as this positive, uh, evolving movement that is another aspect of the civil rights movement, when in reality is nothing of the sort. It's antagonistic to the civil rights. It is ironic when some of the largest capitalist corporations in the world are donating to this organization. And it, it touches on, you know, I think the whole critical race theory thing is overplayed on this level. I think critical race theory is simply a species of critical theory. Uh, and critical theory, the game was always to destabilize the status quo. Yes, there's a utopia coming, but we don't know what it looks like and we're not able to articulate it. But we know that if we destabilize the status quo, it will arrive. And, and critical race theory is just a, it, it's the racial equivalent of queer theory. It's, it's just another <laughs> branch of the same destabilizing epistemology, essentially. It, it is a, it's a circular reasoning type of movement. It yeah. begins as a premise with America being oppressed, oppressive, with America being systematically racist, and it ends with the conclusion that America is systematically yeah. racist. Yeah. So you, when you use your conclusion as your premise, you know you're going to commit a fallacy of, of logic. That is what it is. You nothing is admitted as an evidence against the proposition that America is systematically racist. And everything fits within that system, so it is is an unfalsifiable system. Nothing can be a presented as evidence against this belief yeah. because everything can be fit within yeah. the system of power. It's a conspiracy theory dressed up in post-structuralist jargon. Absolutely. I was asking people, how can, for example, in Kentucky, uh, there have been a, a situation recently and some police officers were not indicted. Well, how can you fit that decision within the systematic, systemic racism uh, theory, well, they let the races go. If they would have been indicted, then you see, they are racist. So that proves that system, systemic racism is true. So whatever the, the, the conclusion is, the answer will remain the same. Yeah, yeah it, one of the uh, principles of, of science, which has borne the test of time, is that uh, you know, every good scientific theory, in order to be sound, must be falsifiable at some level. And that's, you know, yes. the, the thing that you cannot do uh, with critical theory, critical race theory, the, 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 the current narrative coming from Black Lives Matter is um, there's no way to falsify uh, their, their notions uh, because it's a, 
it's a comprehensive narrative and a conspiracy. It functions like a conspiracy theory. In that Absolutely. That I feel very well. It's a comprehensive system of thought that begins with the conclusion. And, 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 and it, we, we hammer the conclusion into the same box. Whatever place, whatever box you want, we'll hammer it there. We, in, the, in our Freedom and Virtue Institute, we have tried to do some things. For example, we began what we call a commonality training. We, we have seen these diversity trainings that don't work. And now organizations are being uh, uh, trained on critical race theory and anti-racism and all kinds and white, white uh, privilege. Reading this book, uh, white, uh, what's the name of this very popular book? That is white Fragility. Right, fragility, yeah. and, and and we said we need to provide an alternative where where the universal commonality of human dignity is what brings us together to appreciate each other, and from that unity, we create friendships. We give each other the benefit of the doubt, and out of that exercise, eventually, I want to know what makes you unique. And then I appreciate diversity at the end of the road, not at the beginning of the road. If I tell you how, how the, many, the many ways that you are different from me, I am going to say, hey, you're too much work. <laughs> you just stay away from you. And that is exactly what's happening with this diversity training. Research tells us that the effect of diversity training on average is a week after the diversity training. And there are more lawsuits for, uh, for discrimination after diversity training than before diversity training. So we are trying, we need to create alternatives to our people and propose them positive alternatives to this radicalized ideology. But you know, I can say that because the way I look, I'm black, I'm Hispanic, and I'm covered. <laughs> you, you guys. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I have a harder time trying to, to do The reality is that we have a monologue on race in America. Yeah. We're supposed to nod and be quiet. And I'm supposed to talk with, with, with uh, epist epistemic knowledge because of my race. Simply my color gives me an epistemic superiority to you. Mm, yeah, that's good. And that's so helpful. And our, our guest today has been uh, Ismail Hernandez, who is the founder and the president of the Freedom and Virtue Institute, which is out of Fort Myers, Florida. He is also the author of a really wonderful book that we featured a couple of years ago. And it is as it's even more timely now, it seems, than it was a couple of years ago. It's called Not Tragically Colored, Freedom, Personhood, and the Renewal of Black America. I still continue to commend that book uh, to people all the more these days because it represents such clear thinking, such Christian thinking, um, thinking that is, that is good for our neighbor um, rather than the more divisive uh, types of rhetoric that are coming out um, and, and driving the narrative now. And so um, we so appreciate uh, your work on this, um, Ismail. We want to continue to uh, encourage folks to uh, seek out your work and, and to help think through these complex issues and to see them for what they are. And, and again, the, the goal here being that, uh, that we want what is good for our neighbor and the kinds of chaos and violence that are springing from uh, much of 
the rhetoric that's going on these days. Those things are not good for my neighbor. I want what's good for them. And, and um, Ismail is a, is a great conversation partner um, on these current issues. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. And uh, our, again, our, our website is mortificationofspin.org. Um, you can uh, visit that, uh, that website to um, uh, uh, check out uh, latest uh, updates and uh, book give- giveaways, that, that sort of thing. And uh, if you have uh, the time and the resources to make a donation to the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals so that they can continue to provide you with this sort of content, then we would encourage you to, to make a donation. But thank you so much for joining us. Thanks again to our, our guest, Ismael Hernandez, and uh, we look forward to being with you all next time. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. For more on topics like this, visit mortificationofspin.org, where you can find other articles by Carl and Todd, browse the archive of past episodes, and make a donation. We'll talk to you next time on Mortification of Spin. You know, and again, the the authority of a voice who was a Marxist. He was knows, a guerrilla. I mean, he was yes, an urban guerrilla yes, by the sides of it. He, he knows the playbook. And I think one, yeah. of the, one of the things that drives mm-hmm. his alarm on this is he's seeing yeah. all the same things again. Yeah. And, and, it, and it alarms him, as it should. We do not want to introduce him to Rod Dreher because Rod will become <laughs> even more <laughs> Rod. <laughs> Put those two guys in the same room and just let them have a great time together. The NASB Journal The Word Reference Bible allows you to record your thoughts next to treasured verses as you cross-reference other scriptures. This single-column red-letter Bible features extra-wide margins, giving you plenty of space to reflect on God's Word and enhance your study. Recognized as the gold standard among word-for-word translations, the beloved New American Standard Bible 1995 edition is now easier to read with Zondervan's exclusive comfort print typeface. Excellent to give as a gift or for personal use, this Bible with your personal writings inside can also become a cherished heirloom to pass on to future generations. Available in black hardcover or brown leather soft, this beautiful Bible lays flat in your hand or on a tabletop. Let Scripture explain Scripture and reflect on what you learn. The NASB Journal the Word Reference Bible from Zondervan. See it now at zondervan.com slash Bibles.